This is the Taiwanology podcast from Commonwealth Magazine, where we discuss Taiwan matters and why they matter to you. Coming to you from Taipei, the capital of the freest nation in Asia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Taiwanology podcast. This is your host, Guang Yingliu from Commonwealth Magazine. Two years after the economists called Taiwan the most dangerous place on earth, a conflict between the U.S. and China seems all the more imminent. Or does it really? The China-U.S. relationship is becoming increasingly fraught, with the Chinese President Xi Jinping accusing Washington of a global campaign to suppress China, and reiterating his resolve to reunify Taiwan. Many articles or podcasts have portrayed Taiwan as a flashpoint. And pointed out the risk for the U.S. to lose access to advanced chips. About a month ago, the French President Emmanuel Macron sparked controversy in a recent visit to China. He said in an interview that Europe shouldn't follow the U.S. in terms of their Taiwan policy, for fear of making the crisis even more imminent. Europe, he said, should have strategic autonomy. However, in almost all of the discussions, the questions were about China and the U.S., as if Taiwan has no agency at all, and there is nothing that the government or the people of Taiwan could do to lower the temperature. What about the 23 million people who live on the island? Is there anything Taiwan can or should do to avoid a conflict? So these big questions will be hopefully answered today. And today、uh, we're very honored to have、uh, this very important discussion with Dr. Gunter Schubert. He is the director of the European Research Center on Contemporary Taiwan at the University of Tübingen. He speaks fluent Mandarin, and over the past thirty years has paid frequent visits to mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. He was just in Taipei for a few months as a visiting scholar at the Academia Sinica. Recently, he also contributed an opinion piece to Commonwealth Magazine about Macron's recent China visit. The headline is "Europe's Dream of Strategic Autonomy." So, I'm、um, very happy to have you today at our studio,、uh, Dr. Schubert. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for coming over. China and Taiwan issues are really becoming very、um, pressing. I think international news, and、uh, so before we start with the really heavy discussions,、um, I would like to talk about your experience.、Um, so, how did you get into China studies in the first place? Oh, I'm always asked this question. Actually, I cannot remember that well.、Um, what I remember is that when I studied、uh, Chinese and political science and law. Back in the、um, mid 1980s,、um, I was very much interested in learning a language that was different from English or French or Spanish. And I had good friends who went to East Asia, and I thought Chinese would be something that is thrilling.、Uh, at the time, it was difficult to go to China、um, because you could only go there with grants, and you had to stay there for certain periods of time and then go back. Uh, I had friends in Taiwan at the time who told me you can go to Taiwan, you can even work there and earn money and stay there as long as you want,、um, because Taiwan has such a liberal policy on that, and they want to have foreigners in the country, 
So I decided that I go to Taiwan, and that was a very crucial uh, decision. Um, and the impact of this decision, I couldn't really figure at the time, but it evolved over time so that I came back um, regularly. Later on, I also went to China and I became a professor, which I never planned actually. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I never, um, you know, lost track of Taiwan. It was always part and parcel of my research. And so it is until the very day. And how was it like when you first got to Taiwan? It was over 30 years ago. And what has changed over the years and what hasn't? Well, I came to Taiwan with a plan. Um, I graduated from university and I was um, going into my PhD. And I wanted to write uh, a PhD on the Taiwanese democratization process. So when I came here in 1990, um, democratization was already on its way for about four years. And I write, got into it, I remember, um, in March 1990, when I came to Taiwan the first time, it was the head of the White Lily Movement. And uh, when I when I arrived here, I went straight from the airport to um, the Jiang Kai-shek Memorial to see Li Denghui oh, coming out the there. The White Lily, uh, the Yebaihe Yundong. Right. So um, just the day I arrived, there was one of those big protests uh, when Li Denghui was just elected. Uh, by the National Assembly and came out to calm down the people there and tell them to go home. And that was the day when I was also there. Uh, this is what I still remember. So that was, um, you know, the start of my PhD project. But at the same time, um, different from the students today, I didn't have any grant, so I had to earn my living here, which was possible in different odd jobs that were well paid. And so I stayed for about three years. Wow, what kind of jobs did you do? <laughs> I'm just being curious here. Well, there was, for instance, um, uh, an, a little association that was that had been founded by Jiang Weiguo, which was an association or sort of an organization of all the German alumni of Taiwan. And they had a little newspaper in German Chinese, and I produced that newspaper with uh, two colleagues. And then also, which was uh, the most important thing that Florence did in Taiwan at the time was teaching. And so I taught German and English and, well, could live very well on this money. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really difficult. It took time, of course. So um, I had to be very disciplined to get all my data for the PhD, um, but I had a great time. Wow. And what is um, your observation for um, Taiwan today? I mean, what has changed and uh, why do you think? Well, when I came to Taiwan at this time in the early 1990s or 1990, it was still um, a very hard fight for democracy or for consolidating a hard-won democracy. And I mean, there was much protest. All the big figures of um, the Deng Wai movement were out there. And uh, I, I could all interview them. That was also great. They were very willing to talk to foreigners, even to a little graduate student, a PhD student like me. And uh, so I, I saw all this consolidation process. I, I, I mean, I came to Taiwan every year since then. And I saw the professionalization of Taiwanese democracy and the institutionalization of Taiwanese democracies of all those years. And can only confirm that that was a success story in many ways. Uh, I also saw the backdrops or uh, some drawbacks 
um, also some weak points of Taiwanese democracy, which I see to the very day, particularly in the realm of local politics in Taiwan. <clears throat> but I was very much impressed by that process of systematically institutionalizing uh, democratization here. Yeah, what has changed? I mean, everything changes in the course of 30 years, right? What I can see here is that democracy has very much you know, penetrate a Taiwanese society. And I feel that particularly when I go to China and compare the two society, societies. So even if many Taiwanese would say they still are Chinese and they are in a way, but there's also much, much difference if you look at the two societies that you would not be aware of if you just go to China for a very short trip and look around like a Taiwanese tourist does. If you watch that over time, the difference are deep going. And this is, of course, a result of the democratization process here. So there is not big change because somebody who observes that every year, more or less, would just see that there is constant progress and there is constant, I mean, in the way that this kind of institutionalization of democracy proceeds, proceeds and uh, becomes part of lives of the Taiwanese. And the biggest change is that you see that it's so um, firm today and it was very contested and controversial in the, in the late 1980s when all the struggle was out there on the streets. Right. But right now it's like people live and breathe democracy. It's in our blood. Yeah. It's really natural. So tell me about the European Research Center on Contemporary Taiwan. Why was that established and what do you do there? Well, back in 2007 or eight, I think it was, uh, we have 15 years anniversary this year. I always had the idea when I, when I became a professor in the early 2000s that I wanted to establish sort of a platform for Taiwanese or Taiwan scholars. At the time, Taiwan studies became a more, you know, became a more institutionalized, institutionalized academic field. And I also worked with others uh, in institutionalizing that field in Europe. And um, that was not so easy because there was not much university support. So I uh, could, at the time, talk to uh, Zhu Han. Um, who was already president of the Jiangjingo Foundation, and uh, the foundation supported me in setting this up. And later on, my university jumped in and uh, also did a lot of things. It's basically a platform for people around the world uh, who come to Taiwan, uh, to Tübingen, um, to work on their respective projects on Taiwan. Uh, we have lots of academic activities during the academic terms where they come together and discuss. So it has developed a very lively center of academic exchange between Taiwan scholars, and it helps young scholars also to get their work on track. It's basically that agenda. Okay. Yeah, so I think it was really one of the f first of its kind in the world, uh, I feel, at least in Europe. Well, there was the, um, no, I think the first one was, but in a different uh, setting, the um, SOA Center in London, um, headed by David Fell, um, my respected colleague and friend. And um, he was pushing that also uh, at the level of the European Association of Taiwanese Studies, which was established at SOAS in 2004. 
two, um, uh, 2003, actually. And I continued with a different idea. And then there were other little centers, and they all do different things in a way. Uh, what might be different in Tübingen is that this um, Pingtai, this platform also offers office space for these people who come from Taiwan or Europe or United, the United States who can stay longer, that we have sort of an infrastructure to help them get accommodation and everything so that they can basically stay a long time if they want. And we also have fellows who um, can work there um, being registered as PhD students in Tübingen or other universities who can stay at Tübingen University, use all these facilities. In that sense, we are unique. I very much would like to visit that center one day. So, Gunther, a part of your study that intrigues me the most is really the Taiwanese businesses uh, operating in China. I know that you have been doing interviews with them over the past decades and What's uh, your assessment of how they are doing now? Because I really feel that they're caught in a difficult situation here as the geopolitical tensions rise. What's your observation? Well, I think um, the current geopolitical tensions touch upon them less than we would believe. Um, I must say, I haven't been to China since the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 2020, and I have not done field work in China since then. However, I met a lot of Taiwanese entrepreneurs here in Taiwan because during the pandemic, I was basically here um, most of the time and most of the Taishang as well. Um, so, and I have continued now doing research over my, la my latest trip here <clears throat> as well. What all these people tell me is that the most pressure is not geopolitical pressure, it's economic pressure from, um, you know, a competition on the Chinese market. It's pressure also from local protectionism, though that is um, pushed back now also by local governments a little bit. But it's basically uh, the pressure to survive economically in the shark basin, which is the Chinese market. Um, as you know, the first generation of Taiwanese entrepreneurs worked in labor-intensive businesses. I mean, they have been pulling out since the late 2000s, actually, going to Southeast Asia and, and um, you know, even to other places. And so the companies that stayed in China, they intend to stay a long time. And no matter um, how cross-thread relations work out, and they do this by different strategies. I mean, there are hedging strategies. One is uh, to go into the domestic market, cooperating with the Chinese partners. Or the Chinese domestic market is immense. So if you have a, comp a competitive product, you can still earn a lot of money. Um, others, big companies, and that's my target sample now, um, they would control risk by shifting production to different places, also to Southeast Asia, but also to Europe, partly to the United States, but also to Taiwan, and would still keep uh, a substantial part in the Chinese market. So it's basically um, a long-term strategy of risk control. And what they all tell me is that there is, of course, uh, tension in the uh, political relationship, and in a way there was always tension. Uh, now it's particularly bad, but the Chinese government is not um, hostile to them. I mean, we hear a lot of uh, news about, you know, unexpected attacks, um, checks, right? But apparently, I mean, my um, 
my um, interlocutors, and I have interviewed several hundreds of them over the years, they would very, very hardly say that about themselves. Um, because they more or less are law-abiding or try to be law-abiding. Um, they are under pressure. And of course, if there is somebody who um, may have open sympathy with the DPP government and shows that in Taiwan and back in, in, in mainland China, uh, this person would probably run into problems. But very few Taiwanese do that. Taishang do this. They are very careful. So basically, the Chinese strategy uh, is still um, to keep them in China because it's also important to have as many Taiwanese uh, in China as possible for the Chinese government. It's also now uh, an important economic asset because those companies that survive are competitive. And um, so the Chinese government, to my best knowledge, is not interested in really chasing the Taiwanese out of China. To the contrary, they are trying to get them in. And it's more a decision of the Taiwanese now if they want to go into China, if they still want to go there. Now, investment has been declining since 2012, uh, and new companies are very cautious to go into China right now. But those companies who are in there and what have decided to stay, they will stay. Right, uh, because they are obviously competitive. And even though they are... Certainly, some of them are diversifying. They are certainly not leaving China, per se. No. So it uh, it really depends uh, at whom you look. I mean, there is this whole bug of labor-intensive uh, um, enterprises, as I told you, who cannot really survive in uh, on the Chinese market. There's also now the pressure of the... Um, uh, Sino-US trade war. Um, there are tariffs that have to be paid on the US market, that makes you also leave China if you're really dependent on, on the United States um, in terms of selling your products. That's why many companies try to refocus their economic activity on China. Uh, so uh, that's something that is hardly discussed uh, in the media. But I mean, Taiwanese entrepreneurs are very intelligent people. They know how to earn money. They know the Chinese market perfectly well, and they know how they can survive there if they are strong enough. So again, um, those companies, and it's also a matter of generation. I mean, the first generation of Taiwanese uh, entrepreneurs is now in retirement age. So they sell the companies, or if they have a son or a daughter, they may give it to them. And these people, then they, they via risk control, may also pull out part of these companies from China. Uh, but as I said, there is still a substantial um, amount of Taiwanese companies uh, that have decided to stay there long term. And they are not, um, you know, the only problem they have is to survive economically in the Chinese market. They do not have a real political problem and they know that they have to be very careful. Right. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that the Taiwanese businesses are the most intelligent people I've ever had to deal with. So um, we're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we talk with Gunther about what Taiwan can do to avoid uh, future conflict. Welcome back to Taiwanology podcast. This is your host, Guang Ying Liu. We're talking to Dr. Gunther Schubert today. So um, we were just talking about the Taiwanese business communities in China, a very important topic, then we're going to talk more about in the future, I'm sure. But right now, let's 
um, refocus on Germany because last year I spent a few months in Berlin, and everybody is talking about the new China strategy that the Green Party government is going to launch. So, what's the progress now? Why is it taking so long? Because it was supposed to come out earlier this year, I think. Well, it's not a Green Party government; it's a coalition government because <laughs> of, um, of Greens, Social Democrats, and Liberals, and that's also part of the answer to your question.、Mm -hmm. um, these parties are very different, or、uh, at least different in their outlooks on China. And since we have a German foreign minister from the Green Party who is a very normative person. Uh, and we have a liberal party in this、um, coalition that looks very much more at economic interests of the German government of the German industry.、Uh, I think it's not really、uh, it's not very difficult to explain why it takes so long. I mean,、um, a first draft has come to light already last year in November. I think it was when、uh, it was、um, exposed. Um, you know how the government wants to put the things together, and it was quite a convincing piece of paper, if you ask me. But still, it's very contested.、Um, there is no consensus right now, not yet, I must say, on our German policy.、Um, but the strategy is going to come very soon.、Um, they, they are under pressure, under public scrutiny. They have to publish that soon. However, I think you should not really give too much weight to that strategy. I mean, we will have a strategy, and I think what、um, what Anna,、uh, Anna Baerbock has already said in China, and also our EU Commission President has said in China, is pretty much the same thing.、Um, so there will be more、um, normative-based、um, policies, they say, but the basic conflict between economic interest. And、um, and normative orientation will stay there. And I mean, German industry is an important political player as well. We have huge stakes on the Chinese market. At least some、uh, some enterprises have. And the same thing with the Taiwanese entrepreneurs. You can see with German entrepreneurs, they see all the problems in China, but they still also see the big big market. And if you go out there, it's Probably a very bad decision, and this is also conveyed this message to our German government all the time. So we have、uh, a structural conflict between normativists and、uh, those people who look at economic interest. It's very difficult to compromise here, and still, it's important that we compromise in some way. So the fact that this strategy takes so long is not. A bad sign for me. It's just uh, reflecting uh, the structural、um, problems we all have in the West to deal with China, and yeah, let's see what comes out there. But again, it's just a strategy. What is done is different, and we have、uh, to look at what is done. And I think in that part, China will still、uh, will still play a big role in Germany. Yeah, I think the remarks by、uh, the European Commission had.、Um, Ms. von der Leyen, a few weeks ago, she said that the European strategy with China should be de-risking, not decoupling. And I I do find that a very important、uh, statement because、uh, I think it seeks to have a more realistic, pragmatic approach because decoupling would certainly be really damaging. 
for the German industries or the European economy as a whole. Okay, let's take the story back to Taiwan. What I'm really interested here is because we, we hear a lot of discussions about Taiwan's geopolitical situation and Taiwan seems to be an international story now. But all the stories seem to center on what uh, the U.S. can do or what the China should be doing. Uh, but nobody's talking about what Taiwan can do. I'm, I'm just wondering um, what can we uh, what can we get from the the story here? And is there really something that Taiwan can do to try to uh, lower the temperature, try to uh, mitigate the situation here? Well, I think you first of all have to understand pretty well where this situation, which you may call the Taiwan condition, comes from over the recent uh, two, three years. I mean, we have structural changes in the global political economy, uh, also structural changes in what we call global geopolitics. And the United States on the one hand and China on the other hand, they are the powerful drivers of this dynamic. And everything else in the world is more or less orienting itself to that conflict and tries to find a position here. And um, there is a certain escalation dynamic that we can see Taiwan is part of that escalation dynamic, a very important part. But also without Taiwan, there would be this kind of, um, you know, increasing tension that we call a structural problem. So of course, it's, it's human beings who, who drive that. But again, this is the background. Now, Taiwan has had a lot of agency during the Mainzu years, you, you may say, in the sense that uh, the United States would not really um, have any position on the way Taiwan dealt with China in the sense that, you know, if you get along well with them, we are happy. And um, so we can, in, we can continue our politics of or policy of strategic ambiguity and only tell the Chinese, you know, it must be peaceful, everything. But if you can talk to them, that's fine. And this has changed. Mm -hmm. For the United States right now, um, Taiwan cannot really talk to China anymore in the sense that the United States wants to know and uh, what 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 is you know basically talked um, what they would talk about and what I want to say is they have now a different look on Taiwan. It's not just uh, that you talk to China but the US wants to know what that talks are about and what these talks go to. So it's a different condition for Taiwan. Um, on the one hand, the Chinese have heightened the pressure on Taiwan by Xi Jinping over the last years. On the other hand, uh, the United States and China are in this kind of structural power conflict. And Taiwan is in the middle and has lost its agency. Uh, so if you ask me why you uh, hear so little, I mean, you hear the Taiwanese government say things. It's not that, they, that it doesn't say things. Uh, it basically subscribes to this... Um, alignment uh, with the US. It's basically all about, uh, uh, you know, like-minded countries who have to defend uh, the liberal order and Taiwan is supporting the global liberal order. So it's basically um, a clear position in the US camp. And and then if you're in, in, in the US camp, then you basically uh, repeat everything that is coming out of the US. And 
so I'm not criticizing that, but that's the structural situation in which Taiwan is. So, um, and it's quite interesting for me to see how um, in Taiwan, you know, if you look at the current um, upcoming election campaign between the DPP and the KMT, how the KMT still wants to find here some place that, um, you know, retakes some, some agency. And you see how that party struggles to do that. Because um, even if you tell the Taiwanese people that if we come to power, there is this kind of um, um, space that we can negotiate with China, uh, the KMT may not be able to do that that easily because the Americans will have an opinion on that. Mm -hmm. So that's why so many um, KMT-leaning um, scholars in Taiwan have become so angry over the last months. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, you know... Um, Who are they angry at? Well, they are angry at the United States, basically, and at their at their government um, to um, have you know b bought out this agency that Taiwan might have had. But then again, um, you know what would be uh, the the consequence of all that? Would Taiwan be able to talk to China independently of any U.S. stance? And that's what has changed. I think they cannot. And no matter if it's a DPP or a KMT government, it would have to be very careful in not losing U.S. protection, which is still basic. And even the KMT does not claim that it get, that that it can act without U.S. support. So you can see by looking at the KMT how restricted the space is for any Taiwanese political party to do something that might be independent from the United States policy vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. This is not a critical um, observation so that I would say the U.S. is, struggle, is uh, stifling Taiwan in any sense. The U.S. has interests here. And Taiwan um, has an interest to survive. And for the time being, I think the majority of the people in Taiwan think that that goes only with U.S. protection, though there is fair skepticism in Taiwan as well if the U.S. Uh, on the point that, you know, if, uh, if the U.S. really would would come here to defend Taiwan with military force. But no matter how controversial this issue is, um, I think structurally spoken, there is little space for Taiwanese agency right now. You can call this tragic, but that's the way it is. That's a reality. So I think you mentioned skepticism, and I do want to bring up, uh, thank you for bringing my, to my attention, a recent op-ed by Long Yingtai, Miss um, Long. So she wrote uh, for New York Times, she talked about this skepticism. Yeah, I mean, uh, but she's not the only one. Um, this kind of skepticism I have heard all over Taiwan. Um, um, you know, people, uh, I've had so many friends, you would you call, uh, mm -hmm. so a common people here who are not really scholars or who have just, you know, are not politically so well informed. And of course, there's a whole array of different opinions. And what Lungintai reports in her New York piece is also what I've heard from many um, Taiwanese people, up to the point that people tell me that, you know, if it really gets to war, um, I mean, you know, then let's just reunify and that's it. And I think, of course, there are also others who would say, I will stand up and fight. Um, so it's a mixed picture. So we, from a scholarly perspective, we do not have enough data to substantiate where Taiwanese public opinion really stands. There are a number of surveys that would tell you about the willingness to defend Taiwan. But then again, this is 
uh, to my understanding, a very superficial approach because it's very theoretical. As long as there is no war, you would mm -hmm. never know how people react. Right. Um, you can believe in their uh, react in their reaction and in their willingness to defend their country, but you cannot be sure. Um, so I think the Taiwanese um, situation is complicated. It's very heterogeneous. And so I would be careful to defame Lung Intai, somebody who reports a pro-Chinese stance by, you know, um, interviewing people or reporting back from people telling her that, you know, in a way we have to make a deal with China. I think that's a pretty uh, powerful opinion in Taiwan among many Taiwanese, though um, they would also say at the same time, if they attack, I will fight. Uh, how that plays out in the end is very, very difficult to say. So it's actually pretty contradictory in what they say they on one hand they are willing to make a deal with china to avoid a war and on the other hand they will also um allegedly pick up a gun and fight but uh, i do agree with you here that uh, regular people on the street are not heard enough so so there is no really conclusion as to what people uh, really think uh, on the street we hear a lot from the pundits, from the media people, uh, but from the you know people from the street, we're not hearing enough. And another question actually uh, raised by my editor in chief. So she wants me to ask this question. Uh, we believe that Taiwan needs to be a worthy partner for the countries in the world. And what can we do or say uh, to? you know, secure that stance and um, have more support from other countries? Well, I think that most countries in the West, uh, at least, um, they um, already think that Taiwan is an important partner. And to my own best knowledge, I have never seen so much people in the West being interested in Taiwan, wanting to know about Taiwan than now. This clearly comes with our deteriorating re relationship to China. So um, our thinking on Taiwan in Europe, and I guess a good deal also in the US, is a dependent variable on this um, relationship with China or of this relationship with China. And of course, uh, the media and also uh, scholars, they would highlight the strong points of Taiwan, their, econo their economy, uh, their um, normative values, their democratic system, so the level of information concerning Taiwan has raised a lot over the last, I would say, two to three years. And there is no question that most people uh, within the uh, economic and political establishment in Europe, they would, they would say that Taiwan is an important partner. It's also an important partner because it, um, it's something that you can tell China about your interest in Taiwan that, you know, it's also always sort of um, a display of a position vis-a-vis -vis China. So Taiwan is honored in itself, but it still is very much attached to our view on China. And um, I think that for the Taiwanese themselves, um, for those who are aware of this, this is uh, a good thing. No matter if it's coming through the Chinese catalyzator, they still think that if that helps us to be, become better known, if that helps us to create support for our country, that's all fine. So my answer to your question is, Taiwan does already what it what it does, and that's good. Uh, it's not really important to tell us more. There is um, enough knowledge on Taiwan already, and 
with all this geopolitical shift, if it comes to the Taiwanese economy, if it comes to the semiconductor industry, if it comes to military drills of the Chinese in the Taiwan Strait, the European public and is very well informed about that right now. You have a report on Taiwan almost every day. I've never seen that over 30 years before. Um, it's it's uh, and I see this with myself when I'm in Germany. Uh, how many people you know try to grab me for some statement or whatever. Um, so this has never been like this. This is something new. Like ten years ago, this was not the case. Not at all. Uh, Taiwan was uh, you know something out there in East Asia, but you know now it has become uh, center stage. And uh, if you look at the economists, for instance, you you mentioned the first edition in 2021 with Taiwan being the most dangerous place on earth. There has been a new edition a couple of weeks before, uh, going even into more detail on uh, the the, um, the relationship between Taiwan and China, how the West should position itself there. So it's also it has become also part of European strategic thinking on Asia very much. And if you look at the latest in a, in the Pacific strategy of the European Union, they all of a sudden talk about Taiwan explicitly, which they never did before in any official document. So much has changed, and I think that um, Taiwan is, you know. Over all those years, the uh, economic and cultural offices in Germany, they had a lot of problems to promote Taiwan. Now they are not in that situation anymore. They are very busy with telling their Taiwanese story and they have so many listeners. Mm -hmm. So that's also something I've I've noticed. And well, it, it's a good thing that Taiwan has more international recognition now. But for me, it's always very important at the same time to think, okay, so what's next? So to be known is maybe step one. And uh, what can Taiwan do to further its cause to, and you know, tell the world a, a story that's our own and that's that, that matters to other people. That's also something very important. Let me say one thing here. I mean, if you say that it's important that we tell the world our story, the problem is that what is our story is contested in Taiwan. It's not uh, a national consensus. Um, so you have this stance out there in the political establishment and also among the people that our relationship to China is something that, well, I tell that way and you tell this way. And um, there is uh, probably the only consensus in this country is that nobody wants to be governed by the Communist Party which is a consensus which is important. Um, and I sometimes wonder, and I've also written in your in your journal on this, I sometimes wonder why the political elites here uh, in Taiwan come not together on that simple denominator and would say that publicly. Not even that. And that is something that is very complicated, particularly in the China-leaning political party in Taiwan, having a difficulty to talk about China, even though there is a communist party and there is China, and making this different explicit is very, very difficult, particularly for the Kuomintang. Also for the Minzindang, because um, they know that talking about Taiwan independence is a no-go, also at the international level, because then it would mean to naoshi, to make problems also for the West. So finding that consensus, the uh, minimal consensus, speaking that out collectively would be something very important and you see how difficult that is in Taiwan. So um, in that sense, this is probably the most problematic lack of agency here. Yeah, so I think that 
sums up today's episode really well. <laughs> On that bright note, I think,、um, yeah, it's the lack of consensus that's depriving Taiwan of its agency, and I think there's a lesson for all of us here. So thank you, Gunter, for your time here, and I know that you're going back to Germany very soon. So safe travels, and、uh, hope to see you very soon in Taiwan or in Germany. Thank you very much. So、um, if you like our podcast, or if you like to suggest any topics for us to talk about, please let us know. Follow the Taiwanology podcast wherever you get your podcast. This show is produced by Commonwealth Magazine. This is your host Kwang Ying Liu. See you next time. <laughs>